Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We uh, thanks again, uh, by the way, to uh, Fifth Sunday <laughs> for uh, coming in to, to play for us. Uh, it's always a, a blessing to have you uh, lead us in worship. And uh, for whatever reason, I think the last couple we got uh, the, the scheduling didn't work out. So uh, we're thrilled to have you back with us. And, and yes, we promise uh, if and when we end up going someplace else, we'll let you know so you don't show up here. Uh, <laughs> planning to lead worship and, and nobody's here. Uh, uh, just a reminder too, after the service today, there will be a special bonus sermon uh, on the Anglican Reformation. I know many of you have been uh, uh, really ready to take up torches and pitchforks over the fact that we haven't uh, covered the Anglican Reformation in our survey of church history during Lent. Uh, so really, there's no need for that. You can just stick around after the service. Uh, but we have been throughout Lent uh, I mean, really, what, what says penitential discipline like studying church history, right? Uh, and we've been, we've been looking uh, quickly over the history of this thing called the church, this thing that God for 2,000 years has been putting up with. And as we've seen, in a lot of ways, the story of church history is a story of one parting of the ways after another. In the very first week, we talked about the two important partings of the ways, things that really had to happen early on, uh, where the church uh, parted decisively uh, from two groups that it really couldn't be with any longer. Anybody remember what they were? What's that? Well, yeah, one of them was the church parted ways with heretics. The church said, no, there are certain things that we have to confess as followers of Jesus Christ. If we're going to be Jesus Christ's church, then we have to confess Jesus Christ and we have to treat God the Father the way he did, i.e. recognizing him as uh, not only God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not only the Holy One of Israel, but the Lord of the entire universe, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the one that Jesus Christ came to glorify. God is not as some of the Gnostics said, a, a lesser deity. He was not sort of the, the warm-up act to Jesus who teaches us to really transcend all that grubby material stuff that the Old Testament God was concerned with. No, the God is, in fact, God existing eternally in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one and one in three. And over the first few hundred years of the church, the church sorted out some of the language that we use to confess the things about God that we need to confess. So one of the things that the church did early on and had to at, at multiple stages was to decisively part ways with destructive heresies, with understandings of Jesus that would not fit with uh, the orthodox, the true faith uh, that we confess. But even before that, yes, Steve. Yeah, parting of the ways with the synagogue. Right? Remember, at first, Christianity was a sect within Judaism. Right? The first Christians were all Jews. These were Jews who came to believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, Joe's son, that he was and is Israel's Messiah. And their fellow Jews in the synagogue said, no, he's not. He can't be. He died. He hasn't ushered in the kingdom. And 
So he can't be Messiah because we're expecting Messiah to come in and drive the Romans out and, and, and establish his throne on, on Zion. And that didn't happen. In fact, the guy died. And we don't believe this story that he rose again from the dead that you're telling us. So no. And early on, it became clear that the church and the synagogue could not coexist. That the church had to say, no, we are the community of people who believe that Jesus is Lord and Messiah, that he is Israel's God, that, that, that he is the one whom Israel's God sent to deliver his people. And what we've seen, and we've been talking a lot about this in our Romans series, is that the, the interesting development that happened very shortly thereafter was that the church blew up, in a good way, in the Mediterranean basin among not just Jews, but Gentiles. You had people who were not followers of Jesus, uh, and not followers of the God of Israel at all, but they became part of this early uh, movement called the church. And so the story of the, the early centuries of the church is, is one of the unified church kind of owning its identity, coming to understand what it is uh, in, uh, as, as against uh, the synagogue of the folks who worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but didn't realize that Jesus was Messiah and didn't worship him as such. The church also was a unified church that was rejecting heresies that would undermine it, that were not faithful to its identity. But then what we've seen in the history of the church, about a thousand years later, if you fast forward, is not a unified church splitting off from something else or making sure that it doesn't have ugly growths but you have a church splitting itself. You have a split within the whole church in the great schism of 1054. The eastern and western churches split. And as we talked about, a lot of that had, had really much more to do with politics, with power, with, with money, than, than really with any meaningful theological differences, although there were some of those. But you have the eastern and the western churches splitting off and cursing one another, and we have this situation go on for another 500 years or so until the situation that Joe talked about last week, where we have the Reformation, where we have the conviction of people like Martin Luther that the church had become hopelessly corrupt, that it needed desperately to be reformed, and that if it wasn't going to reform, then it would be necessary to say, well, we're going to go back to what the fathers originally, the, or the early church fathers said that the church ought to be. And if the church is going, if this, this Catholic church, the Roman church is going to be teaching false doctrine, if it's, if it's going to have a, a series of popes that look more like the mafia than anything else, then we need to kind of recover that ancient tradition and continue being the church. And, and there you have really a, a question of what's going on in the Reformation. Is this a situation where the church is splitting where there's a split within the church of the West between Catholic and Protestant? Or is this a situation where you have the true church holding to its identity and rejecting people who say that they're the faithful church but really aren't? Which is what the Catholics were saying about the Protestants and what the Protestants were saying about the Catholics. Well, fast forward another... 400 years or so, and you get to the late, 18th and, uh, late 19th, early 20th centuries with a development that really has a lot to do with who we are, with the kind of church that we are. And this is 
the split between the fundamentalists and the modernists. See, back in the 18th century, evangelicalism was the dominant form of religion in the United States. Earlier in this century, it would have been mainline Protestantism. Right now, it's actually Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, by a hair above uh, over evangelicalism. But uh, evangelicalism, that is a sort of a robust Protestant faith that was uh, looking to share the good news, that had a high view of Scripture, uh, that w- invited people to come to faith, and that was uh, active in living that out. Uh, this was really the zenith of evangelicalism in the history of our country. And you saw this, for example, in the the success of evangelical movements, not only uh, uh, things we today would call parachurch ministries that were involved in setting up things like Sunday schools and spreading education, but also the abolition of slavery wouldn't have happened without the work of evangelicals here in America or before that in Britain. So this was the dominant form of religion in America, but at the same time, you also had the rise of what, for want of a better term, I'll call liberalism. You had, against this high view of Scripture, a growing idea that the Bible really shouldn't be treated as the inspired Word of God. I mean, there are things about it that are inspired, these folks would say, but there's also in there a whole lot that just seems to be human muck, kind of reminiscent of that whole Gnostic thing, isn't it, right? There's, there's the good stuff that we really like, then there's the other stuff that just seems kind of old-fashioned. So, for example, uh, these folks would say, well, obviously, in a world where we know things that science teaches us, And we can look at the Bible and we read these stories about miracles and we know that can't happen, right? So we're not going to have to, we're not going to really consider that to be true. In fact, once you start doing that, then you start looking at all these stories about Jesus and you get what is known in the, the field as the quest for the historical Jesus. You get multiple quests over the years. But the idea is if you look back and you say, well, if we can cut out those stories about Jesus where he's healing people, well, what else in there should we go back and maybe think that's not really what happened. Maybe this was just something that the church added on later. And so you get the rise of what's known as higher criticism. Uh, took, took root initially in, in Germany and then and spread rapidly in the academy. So the Bible no longer is the word of God that is authoritative. The Bible becomes this collection of religious texts that you can kind of Pick and choose as you like. So that's what liberalism put forth against a high view of Scripture, against recognizing the Bible as inspired and authoritative, against the idea that the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ was necessary for us to be reconciled to God, that our sin had to be atoned for, and that Jesus' death on Calvary was necessary for that. You had a gospel that was more about moral improvement. Look look at Jesus and say, you know, what really you need to see about Jesus is he was a really, really good guy. I mean, a really good guy. Like, 
how much better a person are you going to find than somebody who's going to lay down his life for his friends? You know, that's one of the things Jesus said that they liked, so they would quote that one. But he was just a really, really great person. And, you know, if we could all just be more like Jesus, really the world would be a better place. Woefully misunderstood. It sure is a shame that people didn't get his message of love and peace and brotherness, brotherhood and togetherness and holding hands and singing kumbaya. Really too bad that he had to suffer that horrible death. It would have been nice if people had recognized he was a good guy and then he wouldn't have had to die and then we could just know him as a good moral exemplar and we could follow his example. That whole thing about the atoning sacrifice, that's just something that people later on kind of read back into the story of this Galilean radical peasant. And what that also means is that this traditional message that we need to turn from our sin, that we need to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, the kind of thing that Jesus said, well, maybe the, the point isn't that we're supposed to turn away from sin and turn to God. Maybe it's that we're just supposed to turn away from being bad, being less of a good person, and toward being a better person. In fact, it really shouldn't be necessary that you turn to a particular deity to do that. In fact, that seems kind of exclusive. That seems kind of parochial. This whole idea of different religions just seems to be a whole lot of nonsense papered over the idea that you're just supposed to be a better person. So really, it, it shouldn't matter whether you believe that God is triune or God is one or that there are multiple gods, as long as you're being a good person. Has anybody ever heard anybody say anything like this? It's not like these are really old ideas that nobody thinks anymore, right? And so what you had was, instead of the kind of activism that, that, that an evangelical perspective engendered, the idea of, of feeling like, no, we're on a mission from God. We're on a mission to be God's partners in working out this reconciliation, uh, cosmic reconciliation that he's doing in and through his people, that we're inviting people to follow Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith, that we're trying to live out the values of the kingdom and and trying to, to show what it looks like when the kingdom breaks in by doing things like abolishing slavery. Instead of that, you get a different sort of activism that is strictly concerned with, basically with politics. You may have heard of the phrase, the social gospel. And the idea uh, that the social gospel folks had was that, you know, really what we're supposed to be about is making the world look like the kingdom of God. And we're supposed to take all the values of the kingdom, and we get to decide how they ought to be expressed, by the way, uh, and, and we impose those on the world we live in. So we try to pass laws that make people live the way we think they ought to live, because that's going to mean that they're living well. And we... We try to set up a, a, a whole culture where, where we try to convert the whole of our culture in a way that is really all about the kind of justice, the kind of social equity, the kind, frankly, is of socialism, which is what this was, that, that we think is what Jesus would want if he were here today. Sort of Karl Marx with a pious face on him. 
That is the kind of development that you found within, at first, the academy. But very soon, you found that among the leadership of the denominations. These ideas took hold and started to get more and more influential to the point that in the early part of the 20th century, you basically had open battles within the major Protestant denominations between the fundamentalists and the modernists. So you had, for example, in 1917, uh, this, uh, and I have this as a, uh, you know, for sort of historical purposes, uh, The Fundamentals, which was a a collection of dozens of essays uh, it was funded by a, uh, by a layperson, and he got all these you know, great evangelical professors to write these essays about theology and about scripture and about ethics, saying, no, this is the stuff we're really supposed to be holding to. Like when we say that Christ was born of a virgin, when he was say, we say in the creed he was born of the Virgin Mary, like we actually mean that he was born from the Virgin Mary, that she was a virgin, because that's what scripture teaches, Right? You know, I mean, the, the modernists would, would say, just like the Catholics teach the kids to cross themselves, we should teach them to cross their fingers when they say the creed, because we don't really believe that that, that happened, or that he rose from the dead. That we need to understand that metaphorically. And, and no, the fundamentals and the fundamentalists said, no, you, you guys are going way beyond what God gave us. And so what happened was that within all the major denominations, the fundamentalists went to battle against the modernists. And in all the major denominations, the fundamentalists lost. This was the prevailing swing of the culture. It's not all that much of a surprise when we look back. But what that meant was that the fundamentalists, when they lost these battles for control of these major denominations, some of them went and started their own. So you have smaller denominations that are the more conservative or traditional versions of the larger denominations, those developed, seeing that the seminaries had, quote-unquote, gone liberal. You had the foundation of, of uh, seminaries and schools and Bible colleges that would hold to the true faith. You found the fundamentalists formed their own media empires. The, the phenomenon of Christian radio, Christian broadcasting generally, really started with Christian radio uh, on the part of folks who were upholding and teaching this true faith in the face of the dominant culture of liberalism. And what you also had at the time was fundamentalists not only forming their own denominations, but that was the time when you had uh, really the genesis of a b- widespread movement of individual independent churches. So the idea, and usually they'd be called Bible churches at first, but the idea was that these were churches that were not going to get tied up with those corrupt denominations that had gone uh, off into heresy. These were churches that were going to be faithful to the one true gospel and were not going to get themselves in a position where some bishop could tell them what they could or couldn't say. And that's, that has a lot to do with our history and the history of a church like New Hope. But, as we're going to see next week, that's only the first part. That's only the first part of the major changes that happened over the last hundred years and change that have made us the kind of people that we are. Because what came about just a few decades later, right after World War II, is the split between fundamentalists and evangelicals. So we had a split between 
within, between the Western and Eastern Church. We had a split within the Western Church between Catholics and Protestants. We had a split among the Protestants between the fundamentalists and the modernists. And then, as we're going to see next week, we have a split within the fundamentalists between the fundamentalists and evangelicals. And whether this is important or not, I will leave to you to decide whether these splits were necessary, any of them or not. Uh, You may want to meditate on that. I will say that it was not without reason that the fundamentalists were alarmed and deeply alarmed by the trends that were being pushed by the modernists. You look, for example, in our passage for today in 2 Timothy chapter 3, what Paul was saying there to Timothy, they read that as something that he could quite easily have said to them at that time. Mark this, Paul says, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, without forgiveness, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. These are the kind of people who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women, people who are loaded down with sins and they're swayed by all kinds of evil desires. They're always learning, but they're never able to acknowledge what's true. And just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth. Men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they won't get far, because in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Now, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering. You know the kind of things that, I, that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And our fundamentalist forebears certainly were being persecuted. They were being driven out of their positions in the seminaries, and they were being driven out of their churches, and they were being rejected by the dominant culture of their denominations. And while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but you, as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, Because you know those from whom you learned it, how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Lord God, as people who claim the inheritance of those who were persecuted and who suffered because they held fast to the testimony 
of your holy prophets and apostles. We pray that it would be true of us that we are those who continue in what we've learned and have been convinced of. We would continue to hold to this understanding of Scripture that you've given us, that it is God-breathed, that it is useful for teaching and for rebuking and for correcting and for training in righteousness so that we can be equipped for all the good work you've called us to do. We pray that we would be people who flee from self-adoration, from greed, from boasting, from pride, from abuse, from being disobedient, from being ungrateful and unholy. We'd be people who are loving, who are forgiving, who speak well of others. We're able to control ourselves, who live as moral agents that you formed, not like animals, people who love good. Pray it would never be said of us that we're treacherous or rash or conceited, that we would put pleasure above you. Above all, Lord God, I pray it would never be true of us that somebody could say that we have a form of godliness but deny its power. We affirm, Father, your power, your holiness, your authority. We gladly and gratefully submit ourselves to you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.